This is WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, streaming online live at WVEW.org. Welcome to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us online at Facebook, uh, Indigo Radio, and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed in this show are that of uh, the host and the guests and not that of the radio station. Our show is being recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and our iTunes. Hi, everyone. I'm Josh. I'm an educator in Southern Vermont, and I'm joined today by Anna. Hi, everyone. This is Anna, and I am also an educator in Southern Vermont and also teach at UMass Amherst in the Public Health Department, where I'm also a doctoral student. And we spend the hour today with a psychiatric survivor and abolitionist, Malika Puffer. Josh and I were so lucky to sit down virtually with Malika this week to talk all about carceral psychiatry, what that means, um, the proposal for a new residential facility in Vermont. We talk about community alternatives, what abolition means, uh, and a whole lot more. So thanks for joining us this Sunday. We're going to start with the song and we'll be back with our interview. with Oops, I Did It Again, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We are going to go to part one with our interview with Malika. Malika, thank you so much for being with Indigo Radio with Josh and I today. 
I saw your article in Vermont Digger. Was it this week last or last week, February 19th? In Thai, it was Vermont to make the wrong move on mental health. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what's going on with this proposed new facility, 11.6 million new facility. If we could just start there. Yeah, totally. It's, it's a little complicated. So I'll try to be as concise and clear as I can. But of course, there's a many, many year history of how we got here. Um, and really, it starts with Hurricane Irene. The Vermont State Hospital was closed in 2011, 2012, um, when the hurricane hit. And so the, the mental health system had to make some serious changes during that time. One of them was that they created a temporary secure residential, I'm doing air quotes, facility uh, in Middlesex. And that, so that has existed for the last seven years or something in two trailers. Um, so it's really not, it's a terrible facility that needs to close. No one debates that. Mm-hmm. But the state's plan is to replace that facility, which houses seven people at a time with a 16 bed facility. The current facility and the proposed new facility uh, would be locked. However, the current Middlesex facility doesn't have some practices that are typically only done in hospitals, like restraint, uh, seclusion, and forced drugging. We're gonna talk more about what those things mean if you want, Um, but the new facility would include those things. And the inclusion of those things means there's really two ways to understand, from my point of view, this proposal. One is that this quote unquote residential program will have a degree of coercion in it that is absolutely unprecedented in Vermont, which is extremely concerning, or this is in fact not a residential facility um, and it's, a, it's an additional state hospital. And <laughs> also uh, I, I think it's very fair and accurate to call a psychiatric hospital a kind of incarceration or a kind of uh, prison. Uh, for so many reasons. So in a w- somehow this facility that's being proposed is simultaneously a group home, a hospital, and a prison, uh, depending on how you choose to spin it. So essentially, I and others are, are opposing the creation of this facility because it's an expansion of carceral psychiatry. And yeah, we, we, we need less of that. And we just so desperately need uh, money to go to housing and, and community supports. Can you expand a little bit and tell us more about what you just said, um, carceral psychiatry? I don't feel like it's a term that rolls off a lot of people's tongue. Mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to describe that a little bit more. Yeah, I think about psychiatry as a system that's very parallel to the prison and policing system at the sort of center of that system is the institution, the place where people are locked up against their will and um, lose bodily autonomy. And then sort of branching out from there are the sort of community arms of that institution, which function to sort of enforce the power of the institution in the community, as well as bring people into the institution. So for example, the way that that looks is that you know, even, even if I just go see a, a therapist, um, an independent practicing therapist, I know that if I'm, if I'm thinking about something that might scare that therapist, like maybe I'm thinking about ending my life, 
I, I, unless that therapist just happens to practice differently than uh, sort of the norm, I, I might not be able to talk to that therapist about how I'm really feeling because if they're concerned, they will call a welfare check um, or they'll make a referral to the crisis team. And, and then that will potentially move me along the path towards being uh, psychiatrically incarcerated. Even in situations where you know, you're having interactions with the mental health system outside of an incarceration setting, outside of a hospital setting, the threat, the latent threat of that institution is still relevant in that interaction. And yeah, just the, the parallels between, I think, people, I think people don't know really how, how prison-like psychiatric hospitals, how psychiatric facilities are, and how, how easy it is to, to end up there actually. But, but uh, I think I'd, I'd be hard pressed to name meaningful differences between the two. Another thought I had too, and it was something that you talked about in this piece that you wrote was the co-option of language. Uh, and the, the reason it's interesting to me is because it's something I think about a lot in social services. Uh, I work and have worked a lot in social services, as you know, uh, and I also have done a lot around women in incarceration. And at the same time your piece came out, there's also a couple pieces around the um, proposed, uh, it's a 50 to 60 million new facility uh, for women because there's been a lot of uh, complaints and like a lot of history about the conditions at the Chittenden facility, which is the only women's facility in Vermont. And I was reading that article and I felt really angry because one of the things that they said in the article was that they hoped that this facility, which is going to propose 125 to 150 beds, mm -hmm. um, to make it look more like a college dorm mm -hmm. than a jail. And I thought about that in relation to what you were talking about with the co-option of, of language that we use. One of them was like community-based. Could you talk a little bit about how like psychiatric institutions do that and co-opt some of this language? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like so often whenever there's a new facility proposed or even to describe existing ones, people talk about it being a home-like environment because like, I don't know, there's art on the wall or something, or like there are cushions on some of the, ch the chairs. I don't know. I don't know what qualifies it in people's minds as a home-like environment, but that, that feels very, yeah, like that's co-opted and, and very insulting. And, and about this the proposed Middlesex replacement facility, um, the Department of Mental Health has described it as trauma-informed and recovery-oriented. Um, and I feel like those terms are so deeply co-opted that they effectively mean nothing at this point because that's being used to describe a place where like, you know, just imagine walking into that place, the doors locked behind you, here's a tour, there's the library, there's the room with the chair in it we can strap you to, welcome home like <laughs> that that's <laughs> already traumatizing from my point of view that's very it's been very frustrating I, I just want to mention that I watched this movie I don't know if you've seen it but um, it's called I Care A Lot mm -mm. on Netflix yeah. it's, it's an incredible like it's an intense movie but it's an incredible demonstration of the way that people can sort of twist language to make it seem like something is necessary and like for people's own good when it's really, mm -hmm. really violent. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was doing a little research about the facility as well. So according to the National Provider Identifier Data Database, 
in the state of Vermont, it's the only community-based residential treatment facility uh, that's state-owned. The other 13 um, that are listed there are private, uh, privately owned. So I'm like wondering, like, is this our model for residential treatment? And and again, like you said, you know, that co-opting community base, like how, do, how does that really fit for ourselves? Yeah, that's a great example too, that community base, like in, in what way is a lot of the block facility community based? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make any, any sense. I, I think that's why I've been framing it as a second state hospital because it, it would be state run and is not a residential program actually. Who would the uh, people be that, I mean, would mostly be the residents on average? Mm-hmm. Like what's that, who's that population? That is um, a great question. It, it is exclusively for people who are on involuntary status. And of mm-hmm. course that doesn't imply that people who are not on legally involuntary status are like willingly participating in the system or going into the hospital. But yeah, there are folks who are on a order of non-hospitalization, which is just a court order um, mm-hmm. to be in treatment. I think, I think in many people's minds, that reality would sort of imply that these are people who are very dangerous. But in fact, I know so many people who um, are on ONHs and involuntarily in, in the hospital and have never done anyone any harm at all, have never broken any law at all. There, there's just considered to be a, a danger to themselves. And, uh, and of those who have broken a lot, because some people end up in uh, like psych hospitals instead of prison if they're thought to be incompetent to stand trial. Uh, so many of those cases are folks who have just broken uh, a lot that doesn't involve hurting anyone. So yeah, they would, they would all be involuntary. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and it connects actually to both what you were just talking about is the ER, because you talk some about this. Uh, And I had an experience of uh, assisting or or being in the ER with a person who had a court order to be in, uh, I believe it was the retreat. And this person, because of that, police had to be present and this person was also handcuffed and this person was having a sexual assault examination, which was quite shocking to me because of course I didn't at that time didn't know how a lot of that worked. Could you first kind of talk to us a little bit about the overflow that happens at ERs with people who are in some sort of emotional distress? Yeah, yeah, people are getting stuck in ERs for way too long. Almost any time is too long, frankly. ERs are not the right place for people in emotional distress to be um, if they don't also have a medical emergency. So any time, in my opinion, is too long, but people are um, sometimes staying for days on end in the past weeks. I don't think that that's happening currently, but often people are proposing as a solution to that, having more inpatient beds, more incarceration, because then people can move into those beds quickly from the the emergency department. So if there are, let's say five people in the ER on their way to a psych hospital and there are only two hospital beds open, that's gonna create a a bottleneck. There's a, a, what they call a flow problem there. 
And so the proposed solution is, that, well, let's just create more inpatient beds. We have five inpatient beds for five people in the hospital, in the ER. But in fact, like so many people are, are going to the hospital via the ER simply because there isn't another resource that would meet their needs. I know that there've been many times in my life where I've gone to the hospital just because I needed to like be with another human being, even if that human being was going to basically be kind of abusive to me. Um, and, uh, or people need to get out of their houses or, you know, needs that could be met in other ways if there were other resources. So, so if, if there are five people in the ER, maybe three people's needs or four people's needs could get met by those kinds of solutions. And then we've, you know, that, that solves the, um, the ER wait time issue, even if the solutions that we create aren't exactly right for every single person. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's helpful. There's another like a thing I think obstacle I see is when I've worked with people that really they're in distress, some mm-hmm. sort of distress, uh, and they really need a place of respite. I yeah. guess is maybe the best way to put that. And we might not be the people to be able to do that. Um, or a certain social service might not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the answer becomes that the only way, or, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because it's something I don't really understand, but mm-hmm. that they sometimes have to go to the ER to get some sort of note to be able to go into, say, the retreat, mm-hmm. or they like need to present as if they're going to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. in order to get in mm-hmm. and that seems like such an obstacle mm-hmm. because what do you do when you're in distress you're not going to hurt yourself but you have no place to go mm-hmm. yeah ex- exactly that's one of the ways that the system really like teaches people to be suicidal because that's that's like the only level of distress sometimes that gets any response and yeah it, it I can think of times when I've actually called crisis before and um, the response I got was, well, are you suicidal or homicidal? Hmm. Now, if I say no, I, I'm, I'm not either of those things, what they're going to say and, and what they did say was, well, sorry, it's kind of mind over matter. Call us back if you're suicidal or homicidal. Otherwise, like, good luck. Maybe you could drink some tea. If I say, yes, I am suicidal, or yes, I'm thinking of hurting someone, well, then I immediately lose control of the process. And from there on out, like I, I really lose decision-making power. So you're kind of, it's like kind of a, a catch-22 situation because there aren't, you know, if, if you were in Brattleboro this weekend and you were in a lot of distress, you needed some support, and you didn't have like in-person people or community that you could call on, your only option is the ER basically. So having spaces that people can go to that are 24 seven and where support is just available, that is like a super, super needed resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
for the show today. This is Anna for Indigo Radio, if you're just joining us. We are spending the hour talking about carceral psychiatry and alternative solutions to that. We're going to go to part two with our interview with Malaika. Is there a cost, like do residents of these community-based residential programs, um, is there a cost for them that they incur while they're patients, like outside of, I guess, like regular treatment? Like we understand that like incarcerated people are incurring, you know, daily fines. Like, is that true also if you're not voluntary patient in these facilities? It's a great question. I know that when folks are residents at 
like other residential programs in this in the state, not this this one that we've been talking about. They typically do pay uh, rent on top of like whatever their insurance, if they have any, or what the state is paying to those programs. But in when people are involuntarily in the hospital, I'm not entirely sure. So you wrote in the article that there are solutions though, and that they can be created more quickly, cheaply, and with greater efficacy. I mean, it sounds like that's what you were just talking about right there, like some of these examples. I know that the Brattleboro Community Safety Review Board recently re- published their report, and some of the, what their findings and recommendations focused on were specifically some of these ideas around like actual community-based responses. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of those supports. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think respites are are, are one of those things, um, a, a place for people to go to that, that aren't going to be locked in, they're not going to be coerced, but there's a, a place to go besides your own home, uh, if you have a home, and uh, drop-in space. Uh, there's a proposal, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the op-ed or not, but um, there's there's been a proposal to create a network of peer respites with attached like community centers around the state. Um, I think that could be a really, really helpful resource. Another solution that uh, exists in some places is a sort of like community response team uh, or mobile peer support, something like that, where folks can get really immediate and in-person response, but not uh, police and, you know, even, even if police aren't showing up to calls right now, which they 100% are like all the time, they never don't go. Um, but even if they didn't and like social workers went instead, you know, that would still, at, at least the, the like crisis response that we have now, it is basically, okay, do you need to go to the hospital or not? And so, yeah, people being able to show up and actually offer immediate real support. Yeah, those are those are sort of the the main things that that are that's the immediate response is an analog to like nine one one, the drop in is an analog to the ER, and the respite is sort of an analog to the the hospital meetings because there are sometimes real needs that are met by those systems like I need to get out of my house or something. So those those are the three main things. But then the other extremely important thing, maybe even most important, is community training, skilling up communities um, so that friends can have something to offer to each other besides, well, have you called the therapist or do you think we should call crisis or something like that? And I think that the work that's involved there is so much really unlearning of the messages that we've been told about how uh, supporting people who are in crisis or supporting people who are uh, having like other experiences of reality to ours is is only like something professionals can do. I've actually had a, a friend at one point in my life tell me, I don't feel like I'm qualified to be your friend because I don't have like enough training because of the things that I was experiencing. So that is, that's a huge piece. So I have this right here, mm-hmm. prison by any other name. Something that you're saying is is directly related to something I want to ask you about and and is linked to this conversation uh, about equipping each other and the community. And 
we did uh, um, the Women's Freedom Center and I helped to facilitate this five week discuss discussion group around this book. And there's a whole chapter on the mental health system and reforms and a lot of things that you're talking about. So I'm gonna just read this paragraph to you. And it, it's a lot around like how we wanna like fix people or we, we see someone acting in a way that isn't how we act. And that is like dysfunctional or it's like scary. It's like, or it's unknown or like not normal, right? So there's like all these words that go along with it that are often very disparaging and dehumanizing. Okay, so I'm just gonna read this. Um, so they write, often the goal of treatment is the elimination of madness or else the disappearance of those who are determined to be incurably mad. But Liat Ben-Mosh says, and this is a quote, disability slash madness are ways of living in the world, not conditions to be eliminated. They are embodiments with rich traditions of histories in their own cultures. That's the end of the quote. Many types of treatment claim to be about fixing the so-called problem of madness. The real problem is that certain ways of experiencing the world are seen as categorical threats to normativity, to capitalism, to hierarchy, to the system itself. Our society's answer to a perceived threat is of course confinement. I would love for you to respond to that and your thoughts on that. I love that. I agree with that 100%. I think that we, we can't really talk about this system without talking about that piece of things because yeah, the justification for putting people in cages, for holding people down, for forcibly injecting medications into us into someone's body when they're being difficult the the way that that all gets excused and justified and talked about as treatment or care is our conceptualization of like what is mentally healthy and what is mental illness and yeah that has to be really problematized like the 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 idea that some people's and some parts of the range of our human experience, our mental illness, that our, our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors can be sick, really only makes sense to me as like a metaphorical way of like talking about non-compliance and like productivity in capitalism um, mm -hmm. and, and like can't be separated from like other aspects of our culture, like white supremacy and ableism. Mm -hmm. You actually on that you in the article you also call this a racial justice issue. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that a little bit in regards to Vermont and this proposed facility? Yeah, I think I, I can talk about it in Vermont specifically and also in generally. I think psychiatric oppression is a racial justice issue because I, I think there are so many ways in which our our psychic and like bodily reactions to oppression are then like pathologized and labeled as mental illness. And that functionally is like um, identifying the problem within individuals instead of, you know, in the, in the systems where the, where the problems actually exist. And so that is, that's a big part of it. And, and, and because uh, black people in particular are like, you know, more frequently seen as dangerous, more frequently diagnosed as psychotic or with schizophrenia. And the, the way that we see that show up specifically in Vermont is that 
data from the current state hospital, the Vermont Psychiatric Care Hospital, is uh, shows that 15% of people there are people of color. They categorize that as non-white in their data. While uh, I think there's evidence that people of color are underserved in the community. So, you know, again, just like disproportionate incarceration in, in the psychiatric system as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the book club we had, I just looked up this word because it doesn't stick with me, but someone had brought in that drapetomania. Am I mm-hmm. I'm saying that correctly? Yeah. Was this quote unquote mental illness mm-hmm. of enslaved Africans fleeing captivity. Right. Really, I mean, disgusting and brutal historical link to also what, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, a great book that explores this is The Protest Psychosis by uh, okay. Jonathan Metzl. It talks about how part of the definition of schizophrenia changed in, I think, the 60s. And mm-hmm. as a result, a bunch of Black men in particular were psychiatrically incarcerated. And part of the evidence, part of their uh, supposed symptoms were their efforts towards equality and racial justice. Mm-hmm. sweets of any kind since the day you came around from the start i instantly made up my mind sweeter sweetness can't be found you're so sweet can't be beat nothing sweeter ever stood on feet every honeybee filled with jealousy when they see you out with me i don't blame them goodness knows honey That was Mildred Bailey singing Honeysuckle Rose, and you are listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 WVEW, Brattleboro Community Radio. We're going to go to part three of our interview with Malika Puffer. You yourself identify as a psychiatric survivor and abolitionist, Mm -hmm. and I would love for you to tell us what that means to you, both of those um, identifiers. Yeah, sure. Yeah, to me, being a psychiatric survivor means that my experiences in the mental health system were things that I, of course, had to survive and am still surviving and like probably will be recovering from for a long time. And the kind of harm that I think psychiatric survivors, including myself, experience ranges from really like brutal physical violence to uh, more like sort of existential violence in terms of how we come to like see and make sense of our lives. And for me, both of those are true of experienced abuse in the psychiatric system and um, coercion. And also the messages of psychiatry came to dominate my own understanding of my suffering Mm -hmm. in, in such a way that my, I think really meaningful and informative feelings became like things to eliminate and like shut off and shut down. Um, and that, that was quite harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what being a psychiatric survivor means to me and being an abolitionist, specifically a psychiatric abolitionist means that I think the, the psychiatric system, the mental health system is doing more harm than it is good. And we would be much better off slowly transitioning to a world where we don't have that and and I think, yeah, that's got to be a gradual process. I think the image of erosion often comes to mind for me. And yeah, I, I think that there, 
there's so much that is possible that doesn't feel possible because of the degree to which psychiatry has been effective in posing itself as a, as a solution. Mm. That's not to say that, you know, there's never like help that happens or, you know, that people don't have good experiences or that everyone working in that system is terrible. Um, Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, that's something I think to myself as someone in social services always, and having experienced that world always kind of talks about is like, there's so many well-intentioned people in, in care type organizations and you know also like well intentions don't mean anything sometimes um and it can go very badly but i guess what i'm saying is that there are truly some really people that are even like within those systems trying to change things which is why it feels more helpful to look at the the systems that even if you're trying to do something either policies or whatever shifting you in a, in a certain way it's a little bit like what you said around Uh, say like the wellness check, even if it wasn't the police and it was a social worker, there Mm -hmm. still is like a sort of bureaucratic response that happens. So that's something I really think a lot about. Mariam Kaba, who's a prison abolitionist, talks a lot about is that, I mean, she says it so simply, like it's not about the police, it's about policing. Right. And that she's against the policing in the in the form that we have yeah absolutely i do work within the system and like can tolerate that because i think there's some overlap not entirely but there's some overlap between like certain kinds of improvement or change within the system now and like moving towards abolition so try to be quite careful about that but i think mm-hmm. that there are ways that that can that can happen I know I'm backtracking a bit, but I want, I would love for you to respond to this. I'm thinking about wellness checks. Josh brought up the, also the community safety review. And I was looking at that too, in the mental health section, there's, there's like continual examples of, we want the police out. We want them separated from mental health Mm -hmm. that shows up everywhere. And yet they are the ones that respond to these wellness checks. Like if you're worried about someone, you can't get a hold of them. What do you say to people that are like, what's the problem? Like police, that's a good use of police. You know, they're just checking to see if someone's okay. Oh, uh, your face, your face said it all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you say? What do you say to the devil advocates that say that? Right. Oh gosh. Well, you know, I think when people say things like that, I immediately just the people whose stories I know of who have been killed by police when they when the police have come to do welfare checks. Does anyone ever get helped by welfare checks? Yeah, probably. I think if we randomly went to all the houses in the town, we're like, "Hey, are you okay?" Probably someone would be having a bad day and be like, "Yeah, thanks for checking." But Uh, people die from welfare checks. And even when people don't die, people, uh, you know, if police showed up at my house, I probably, I don't know what I would do. I would probably pee my pants and then I wouldn't answer the door. And then they wouldn't know if I was okay, right? Like maybe I'm not in a space where I can talk my way through convincing them that I'm actually okay. Mm -hmm. Because once you are a psych patient, your word means nothing. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you have, you have zero credibility. So yeah, like maybe I could like talk them into believing I was okay, regardless of whether I was or not. 
but also if I didn't try to engage in that like gamble, they would make whatever assumption they make. And that, and that might be that I'm not okay. And so there, then, you know, it's pretty easy to get a mental health warrant. And then, you know, they're breaking down the door, putting you in shackles and dragging you to the ER where you then stay for who, who knows how long. Um, so when I think about, <laughs> if I think about the, the idea of someone following a welfare check, that's the, the, that's the kind of scenario that runs through my mind. And, and I know it's not far-fetched because I, I, I know the stories. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think about too is how, and this would disproportionately affect people of color and poor people too, is mm-hmm. the combination too of um, police doing a welfare check and the ripple effect of kids being taken. Yes, yes. And that is like horrifying to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm reminded throughout all of this and thinking about it is Elijah McLean. And here is this person in need. And then like, next thing you know, he's being injected with ketamine and he, he dies from that. Like the system we have and these practices like of forced drugging, it's a very ugly violent practice. And I'm wondering how widespread it is in Vermont here, if you have any idea about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, the issue of forced drugging also makes me think about what we were talking about earlier about language and co-optation, because no one in the system calls that forced drugging. That's like psych survivor language. What they call that is emergency medication (laughs) or involuntary medication. Yeah. So in terms of the frequency of that, there is there are reports that are publicly available on what they call emergency involuntary procedures, which includes restraint, seclusion, and uh, forced drugging uh, within the different psychiatric hospitals in Vermont. And I think that data, I, I remember last year looking at that data and just being so disturbed by the number of hours that are documented. Well, actually they're only documenting hours in restraint and seclusion. They don't document forced drugging in terms of hours because it's like an injection, right? How how long does that take? But the data doesn't include like how long people are unconscious after they've been like given a drug or how long they're like incapacitated by it. The data does say how long people are in restraint and seclusion. And I was horrified by the numbers that I saw uh, which were something like 200 hours in a three-month period. Um, but then I learned that data is only for involuntary patients. It doesn't include how often that's happening to quote-unquote voluntary patients. That's a whole chunk that's missing. The state doesn't uh, collect uh, data about how frequently people are experiencing restraint, seclusion, or forced drugging in the emergency departments, which is a huge amount. And of course, we know that like the ways that those things are documented are not entirely trustworthy, at least to me. So I think that there are some numbers out there, but any, any number I would say that people see has got to be less than the actual reality. Thanks for that. Yeah. So Maleko, um, I think one of my final questions here, and before we end too, I wanna to make sure you talk about what people can do. Cause you, you talked a little bit about that and we're gonna put a link on our show and, and on Facebook for the your article and also maybe what people can do. But I'm, I'm in public health and a lot of my work is, a, is around community health education and also is around the political economy of health. And in public health, which of course encompasses 
most emotional, psychological, mental health, there's like a very dominant narrative around, or the way that they talk about health promotion practices always end up around like individual intervention, even though like they talk about the quote unquote social determinants of health, they're still coming back to individual education or individual um, health promotion practices. So I do a lot of trying to say, no, we need to look at these like macro structures, like what else, how, how are our lives organized and how is that affecting our health? Mm-hmm. And so I just wanna um, read this quote and this is actually from 1966 and it's from an article by Paul Barron and Paul Sweezy called uh, The Quality of Monopoly Capitalist Society in Mental Health. And in talking about the psychological conditions that emerge as a consequence of the capitalist system, they say, it is indispensable to recognize the vast extent to which the economic and social order of capitalism and the process of alienation, which it generates, mold the psychic and indeed physical functioning of people in the capitalist era. And I'm wondering if you could kind of respond to that and talk about what are ways like, you know, for people listening to to think about this and and solutions to really the well-being of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that quote. I think about, you know, what does it mean to like assess wellness in the context of profound like social isolation and like environmental degradation and like rising fascism and like all of these things like it's sort of like how do you like like when when you've locked someone in a cage then determine whether they're like well enough to be released or something um there I think there's such violence in like separating people from their emotional their their environmental context and like treating us as if we're in a vacuum as if we're not like in in the context that we're in yeah I think Another thing that's coming to mind, and, and I don't know if this is if this is relevant, but I'm thinking about the experience of voice hearing and the ways that the voice hearing is like, I think, very much a normal part of the human experience. That's just something humans do is hear voices sometimes. I think anyone has the capacity to hear voices in the right sort of context, but the, the way that we experience uh, voice hearing is different in different cultural contexts and in our our context and in Western cultures generally where voice hearing is constructed as this thing that is bad, dangerous, pathological, people's experience of voice hearing is much more likely to be um, negative and like have persecutory voice, voices. Whereas in cultures where voice hearing is acknowledged as like part of part of the possibility of what someone might experience. And in fact, potentially a, a gift, voice hearing is much more likely to be positive and supportive. I, I don't know if that directly relates, but it came it came to mind anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think going back to like what the question I was asking around, yeah, like the, the larger organization of our society and kind of like how that impacts us, like both physically and psychologically is, uh, I know Josh had brought up yesterday when we were talking about COVID and I was just actually thinking about it right now around how you definitely hear a lot about the concern 
for people's mental health because mm-hmm. of the isolation around mm-hmm. kids, like socialization and mm-hmm. mental health because they're at home all the time. Um, you hear this like deaths of despair that we've actually been hearing for like a number of years, right? Mm-hmm. Yet still the rhetoric is, and my guess, it's like, it's still gonna be individualized like around the answer and solution around that rather than look at our disastrous public health infrastructure or our like crumbling schools that we're not able to bring kids safely in or look at the handling of this. Yeah, and, and that is a concern, right? And as, yeah, do you have any concerns around that rhetoric that's going on right now around COVID and mental health? Yeah, I do. I, I do have concerns about that. And often I see, like once in a while, I see things going around like on social media of like, hey, here are some um, like hotlines you can call, call the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If, and, and I think the implication often in the way that I've heard people talk about this is that like, you know, oh, people, people are like developing mental health problems in this pandemic versus like people's needs are going unmet in this pandemic. And we are, we are, yeah, I'm really concerned about people sort of having the experience of thinking like, oh, there's, you know, there's, there's something wrong with me that like, I'm not able to like cope with this. Yeah. And and I wonder also though, if it's a good, I've heard a lot of people talking about like experiencing things that they don't normally experience. It's a little hard to know like what's real right now. And uh, it's a little hard to feel like life is livable right now. And I, I wonder too, if, if it actually might be in some ways helpful for people to understand that those feelings and experiences are, are things that do come, do happen in, in response to um, context of, you know, deeply disturbing things happening and not getting needs met. Mm-hmm. Cause if that's an experience that's been foreign to you so far, uh, you might think there's just something wrong with those people who are experiencing that. That's very sort of individual to them. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I like what you said there around not getting meets met, met and then the suffering as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that we're probably out of time here, but I do, the last kind of thing I just wanna ask you is if you could tell people what they could do. Well, one, I would love for you to just let people know what they could do around this new facility. And then if you have any small bits of advice for people who do see a neighbor in some sort of distress or a friend. Yeah. So about the, the proposed Middlesex replacement facility, the thing that people can do is uh, reach out to your legislator, wherever you are uh, in, in Vermont, um, or reach out to the, uh, at least right now, the House Healthcare Committee, the House Appropriations Committee, it'll be over in the Senate soon and just let, just tell people you don't want that facility to be built. Um, that's basically all that needs to happen. The most helpful thing is individual emails from different people. So sending a quick email doesn't have to be long is huge. In terms of what, you know, small things people can do, I, I think, you know, engaging in some uh, learning or unlearning about quote-unquote mental health. Um, there's there's some great resources by uh, Project Let's that are like, you know, basic 
skills uh, trainings. Um, there's a webinar that's a great place to start called Decarcerating Care. Um, I think those are really good points of entry for people who are beginning to think about these things or even have been thinking about them for a while but wanna like sort of deepen their understanding of their skills. Okay, awesome. And we can link to that too. And we'll make sure that we link to your article also on our Facebook page. Cool. Um, Malika, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, it's great. Yeah, thanks Malika. We wanna thank Malika for spending so much time with us. It was so awesome uh, to interview her. I actually told her that I had been wanting to interview her for maybe two or three years because I've seen her speak in public forums many times. And she, I think, is a really needed voice in this community. And we just really appreciate everything that she brought to the show today uh, and everything that we learned from her. Josh, I know that you wanted to just mention some things going on with Spark and uh, our movie events. Yeah, so I wanted to say thank you to everyone uh, who showed out this last Friday for the ongoing Spark and Broadway Solidarity film series. We watched on Friday the first Rainbow Coalition, um, which was an excellent film about the organizing happening um, in Chicago in the 60s. Um, our next film series is going showing is going to be March 26th and the film's going to be Maestra and you can follow us online uh, for more details and how to watch. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday and we'll be back next week. Do more forgiving
could love each other, sister, we Wow.